Welcome to One and Done TV. I am the first one of your co-hosts to speak, Ian Hamilton. And I, therefore, am the second one of your co-hosts to speak, John Polking. And this is the podcast where we review television shows that were canceled after one season. Isn't that right, John? Yeah. Sometimes we love the shows. Sometimes we hate the shows. Sometimes we love Dick. Sometimes we don't love Dick. We are out in the desert uh, dancing on the graves of these shows, examining what they were, what they left behind, and ultimately what made them one and done. Today, we are reviewing 2017's I Love Dick on Amazon. But before we get to that, John, what are you watching these days? So I saw what is probably my second favorite movie of the year after Everything Everywhere all at once. I saw Tar. Kate Blanchett. Oh, yeah. You talked about how you were going to see it on the last episode, I think. Well, time has passed, and I have now seen it. It was incredible. Kate uh, Blanchett is truly just one of the greatest actors of our time. It's a little slow, but it's very purposeful, and it pays off in great ways. You know... I think 2001 A Space Odyssey is kind of that way, too. You could that say that, or you could say that it made me fall asleep and want to gouge my eyes out. There's there's that Tarted? other interpretation. No, no, 2001. 2001. Oh, okay. 2001 doesn't even have an accent on any of the A's in the title. <laughs> Nor does I think it have... Oh, wait, no, Space Odyssey. There's an A there. Anyway, Tar, for those that don't know, is this uh, fictional portrait of a conductor who lives in Germany, who's this sort of big, powerful figure in the classical music industry, and has her life fall apart because of all the terrible things she does to the people around her. It's just completely captivating. It's nice to hear that someone's life can fall apart after being crappy to other people. It it, it feels good. It feels good, but also it, it's just very complicated and layered, and all the performances are great. The way it's directed is phenomenal. There's this uh, very long take in like the 20th minute of this two-hour and 40-minute thing that is just completely riveting, where she's kind of ripping apart this uh, conducting student at, I think, Juilliard. And oh, Kate, I just love Kate Blanchett. I thought the movie was incredible it's a hard one to describe but when you get like sucked into it it just soars and well who's better jk simmons or kate blanchett jk simmons is scarier kate blanchett's better and i love whiplash desperately it was a funny kind of experience too because i saw it and again it's a two hour and 40 minute movie there was somebody that left two hours and 25 minutes into the movie in the theater that i was in what i know and it wasn't like you can tell when the movie is ending. Like the last sort of 30 minutes are a pretty gradual cool down. And you could tell that it was wrapping up. And he, I guess, just had had enough. I was like, no, I'm good. And walked out. It's very interesting. Ian, what about you? What have you watched? I was privileged oh, enough to see a pre screening 
of the movie Weird at Alamo Drafthouse had like a screening of it at some of their theaters around the country. And I was able to reserve my seats, which actually was it was kind of a hassle in itself. Every time I kept hitting buy, they'd be like, oh, these seats are taken because there was only one theater that was showing at Austin and those seats were being taken up so quickly. I I was just happy to get these seats at all. It's got to be like a movie that Austonians take on as their own since it's part, you know, weird as part of the Austin motto. And yet they didn't play it in Portland. It was uh, LA, New York, Denver, and Austin. Wow. You know what, though? I think... I was one of the only people to bring their own Hawaiian shirt, which I mm. thought was strange. Disappointing. When you go to Weird Al concerts, they're everywhere. Yeah. Um, everyone shows up with accordions and the hair and the Hawaiian shirts and any other Weird Al thing they can think of. I'm going to challenge you on that. Accordions? People bring accordions to concerts? I think... People, the odd person brings an accordion and other people bring accordion-type accoutrement. Like a bellow? What is sure. it, What is accordion-like accoutrement? I don't know. You made this statement. You show up to the concerts and people have silly things. They have silly things. They don't bring accordions, though. I need... I'm willing to bet at the next Weird Al concert you go to, you look out for an accordion, you take tallies, and you get back to me. Okay. If there is one, I will give you $50. If one person brings an accordion at the next Weird Al concert, it's on record, I will give you $50. Perfect. This is on record. And cool. if there isn't anyone with an accordion, I don't owe you anything. <laughs> so how was the uh, movie? <laughs> it's awesome. It was really really satisfying. I mean, it's weird. It's silly. You know, it makes fun of biopics, but at the same time, uh, right as as soon as you think you figured it out, it takes its own direction. And I really, really appreciated that. It's not just a rehashing of Walk Hard, you know, Mm -hmm. but with Weird Al, like it is its own unique thing. And it was just a lot of fun. I mean, I'd say it's it might be a little cheesy, but it's supposed to be, so it's fine. You know, yeah. it's like tough for me to say whether if I like it better than UHF or not right now. Um, I know Pat Oswald on Twitter said it was he loved it. Uh, he loves UHF, but this one was better. And I'm like, uh, I don't, I don't know, I don't know. I think I'll have to watch. We'll we'll see how it progresses throughout the years, I think. Yeah, it's tough when you've got something as like foundational to our personalities as UHF and you know, it is it is baked into our beings. I think it's probably a better movie, like it's it's well made, you know, mm-hmm. but it's a little more gimmicky. And again, yep. it's like supposed to be. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I loved it. I loved it, though. I'm really looking forward to it. We are recording it the day before it is released on the Roku channel. I, fun fact, bought a Roku stick 
the other day just so wow. I could be able to watch it. Yeah. I mean, it was on sale. It was like 25 bucks. But I did the math in my head. I was like, I would spend $25 to see this movie just on its own. So. Oh, yeah. It's like, what, a ticket, a popcorn, mm-hmm. a large drink. You're always getting those large drinks. I do. I love a good refill. Uh, as long as you don't have to like talk to somebody when you're getting your second refill on Thank drinks. Thank you. Yes. It's it's important because I don't want to feel shamed for my borderline unhealthy drinking habits. Not only is it important, it's showtime. <laughs> Five, four, three, two, one, showtime! In 2016, Amazon subscribers voted to extend the pilot for I Love Dick into a series. Despite the cult following of the book, the previous success of the showrunner, and critically acclaimed performances from Katherine Hahn and Kevin Bacon, in January of 2018, the streaming service voted to cancel it after one season. So, I Love Dick, John. This is going to be an interesting conversation because... It's an interesting show. There's a lot going on. Yeah, it's hard to distill into one hour to hour and a half podcast. We could keep this going all week if we needed to. Uh, I don't know if I could because while there's so much to talk about, it's such a whirlwind that I don't know how much of it I actually remember. That's fair. It is a bit of a fever dream at times, both like stylistically and just narratively. Ian, did you remember when this show came out? I miss the Amazon releasing pilots and then picking up shows based on who was watching them. I love that model oh, yeah. so much. I, I remember when they did that really early on. It was like there was an Onion TV show. Mm-hmm. I remember that it had Jeffrey Tambor and uh, Francis from Malcolm in the Middle. Bridget Everett had one, too, I think. Uh, the Tignataro show, One Mississippi, was also picked up in that way. And I think Transparent was, too. That was how Transparent started. Wow. Did they do this for, like, years? Yeah, they did it for a few. Yeah. I think this was one of the last ones. Yeah. I only remember, like... At the very beginning of Amazon, like what was one of its first? Oh, John. Is it I Bosch? Think Mozart in the Jungle was picked up this way. I'm sure it was. Yeah. You love Mozart in the Jungle. I love the first two seasons of Mozart in the Jungle. Ian literally like levitated from his seat when he mentioned Mozart in the Jungle just now. It was just such a special time in my life. <laughs> Because you were living in New York at that point, right, too? And No, actually. I was no? living in Chicago. Actually, when it finished, I was living in New York. Okay. I don't actually think I bothered to stick around for the last couple episodes, if I'm going to be <laughs> totally honest. Uh, uh, but l- like all Amazon shows, it ends very unceremoniously. It just peters out at the end. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, like Red Oaks. You watch Red Oaks? Oh, yeah. We've talked a lot about Amazon shows being unceremoniously dumped in our previous episodes. See Cough Cough, Paper Girls, Cough Cough. I Love Dick was an interesting one because it was based on what was a, my understanding, a very popular sort of semi-autobiographical but mostly sort of fictionalized 
book from the author Chris Krause. And the book is sort of this big staple in sort of modern feminist literature. One of the driving forces behind this series is to take women that are usually the object in literature and movies and to turn them into the subject, Mm -hmm. to turn her into the subject. Now, the actual book is, it's really interesting because these letters, and we'll get to the letters later, but that's, I hate to say driving force again, but I'm gonna. (laughs) Uh, Fine. The spine of the book. How about that? (laughs) Look at that. Uh, You being literal with your metaphors. I love it. Yeah. (laughs) And the series are based off of these letters that Chris Krause wrote to this man, Dick, about her obsession with him. And these letters just came out of a a fever, out of a lust, out of a desire, out of an obsession with him. And, you know, it's, it's that feeling of falling in love when someone is not reciprocating it and you just, you're, it's maddening, right? You like spiral and you're obsessed with them and you're, you know, I mean, it's a very young feeling, I I think, but The funny thing about it is this happened to Chris Krause when she was middle-aged and had been married for like 15 years. Mm -hmm. And this sort of lust and desire, it also is further spiraled by how withholding the dick character is. And so when you're just like in your head trying to get somebody to notice you that isn't noticing you, what does that do to your psyche and how do you... How do you get out of it? How do you, or do you even want to get out of it? And that's sort of the question that is being thrust upon like the main character of the show too, who is played by uh, one of the great acting loves of my life, Catherine Hahn. Uh, Ian, I know, you know, I'm obsessed with Catherine Hahn. What do you, how do you feel about Catherine Hahn? I love Catherine Hahn. I mean, I'm mostly, I think I started to know her from Step Brothers, if I'm going to be honest. I mean, she has a pretty long career. Yeah. But, oh, you know what? I did realize she has a small part in Anchorman the last time I watched it, too. Yeah, she's got, like, two lines. Uh, well, she's always kind of in Christina Applegate's, like, gaggle mm-hmm. of people. And uh, she's, like, the the top of the gaggle, you know? <laughs> um. And then uh, she was in the show Free Agents, which is an, another one and done show that I really want to watch. Yeah, we need and to then do that. Most recently, I mean, I just thought she was incredible in WandaVision, mm-hmm. the spinoff, which will be coming soon. And she was also in a project that was done by the creators of this show, uh, Afternoon Delight, which is another very interesting movie. That's the thing I like about. Catherine Hahn in particular, like how she chooses projects, she, you feel like the connection that she has to the material, anytime, whatever that material is. She throws herself wholly into it and is, and always manages to find the humanity, even in something as insane as a stepbrothers or a WandaVision or something like that, where she is this sort of elevated thing. I, I just adore her. Always. Yeah, she has the unique ability to be completely over the top and completely grounded at the same time. Um, it's one of those very rare types of actors that can 
even though I've seen her in so many comedies, I would not call her a comedian. Like, no, she is an actress. You know, there are comedians who do drama and there are dramatic actors that you'll see cross into comedies, but she's everything. Uh, one of the co-creators of the show, Joey Soloway, described her as being very Chaplin-esque, which I mm. actually thought was the the perfect way to describe her comedy. She's very physical, mm -hmm. right? I mean, she can be all like, but uh, even when she's being dramatic, she contorts is the wrong word. No, I was thinking contorts too. The the drive of this character is someone who is very like, you know, just figuring things out and that makes her internal repression kind of come out as this sort of like hunched over, like bent elbow, like I don't feel comfortable in my own skin because this is how I, it's the physical representation of how I feel about you, which is completely overwhelmed. So I don't know what to do with my hands. Ah. I, <laughs> I think it's interesting you brought up the repression aspect of it because this, so the real Chris Kraus was married to a famous author who was actually a survivor of the Holocaust. And a lot of this book came out of her feeling invisible, like she was in his shadow. Mm. And so a lot of those repressed feelings, she said actually is kind of why this obsession drove her so mad for a while. Like she had a lot of pent up feelings about artistry, about marriage, about love, about lust, whatever, that just came out in this fever, which we will get to soon. Uh, really quickly, I want to discuss uh, Joey Soloway, one of the co-creators. Um, they created Transparent, um, and this show came off the heels of their overall deal with Amazon, and I think there had been two seasons, two very successful seasons, of Transparent that came out before this. Transparent won like a bunch of Emmys in its first year too. And so, yeah, Joey Soloway in particular was a very hot commodity at uh, in those sort of mid-2010s. Right. And then their friend Sarah Gubbins, who is a playwright, uh, they co-created this show together. And Sarah Gubbins has a pretty interesting post I Love Dick career, writing on the show Better Things. She wrote this movie, Surely, that I really want to see. Which one is that? I've no, I don't think I've even heard of that. Uh, right. It was an indie movie that I saw the trailer, really wanted to see it, and then all of a sudden it's been out for four years and I still haven't. <laughs> uh, it stars Elizabeth Moss and Michael Stuhlbarg. Oh, And again, yeah. it's about a real-life author like yeah. a famous horror writer and i think it's i don't know if it's fictional or if it's semi-autobiographical but it's like it takes their relationship and turns it into some kind of horror movie based yeah. on a real person that was a sundance and, movie i remember i think maybe one of the years i went to sundance and yeah it, it looked really cool and then she was a producer and writer on uh Pam and Tommy, which <laughs> I thought was incredible. Yeah. Love Pam and Tommy. Yeah. Well, Ian, before we get into the show, I think we should take a quick commercial break. 
And now, a word from our sponsors. Hi, this is Ian, and I'm trying to do this commercial as quickly as possible. Please review and rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Hive Social at One and Done TV. Email us, oneanddonepod at gmail.com with any suggestions or thoughts. If you haven't hit the skip forward 15 seconds button yet, I will be amazed. Okay, enjoy the show. So, John, I think we should talk about the highlights. This show takes place in the town or city, but really tough to call a city of Marfa, Texas, which (laughs) is a small town in West Texas that is known for being a haven for experimental art and artists. It's really in the middle of nowhere. Um, That's the biggest thing it has going on. And I have, it's funny, actually down here, I have two types of artist friends that have gone there. Oh, really? One of which loves to go there (laughs) all the time, feels divine inspiration from it. The other one went for a weekend, maybe a long weekend with her partner, you know, hoping, uh, she's a sculptor and she was hoping to get that kind of inspiration. She thought it was like the most boring (laughs) town she could imagine. But also she's from kind of a smaller town, Texas, whereas the one that finds inspiration isn't. So yeah, it definitely seems like one of those places that outsiders would feel sort of a novelty to that sort of small town charm. Whereas insiders feel like, well, this is just our place of living. What are you, What are all you weird hippies seeing in this slab of desert? Right. Like, okay, there's like bars and a little grocery store and dilapidated houses. And then someone just built this really nice, expensive art gallery here. Yeah. And most of the people in the town are like they work for oil rigs and stuff like that. It's there's nothing special about it except for what the outsiders, I think, kind of put onto it. Why the outsiders come, at least in the show and the book, I'm not 100% sure about real life, is because of this famous art gallery, this retreat that is offered up to artists and writers to come for a month, a week, a year, to get together, be all artsy-fartsy, uh for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it's, and it's clinical. And to, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we are doctors, oh. <laughs> uh, which we've talked about in our recent episodes. Um, but yeah, to like get together and mind meld and really get deep into their work. Mm-hmm. And this institute is a place that they can all come to focus on their crafts, which is why our main couple shows up um, so the first person is Chris, who is arguably the the lead of the show, yeah, uh, played by Catherine Hahn, like we talked about. And she is a filmmaker whose work was recently thrown out of the Venice Film Festival on a technicality. Okay, it's not so much like a technicality. She fully ignored a cease and desist uh, to uh, include music into her movie. 
And so the film festival didn't want to get sued. I, yeah. I think that's a little bit more than a technicality. I will say. No, you're right. You're right. And I really appreciated that even in the show, she was like, I wanted to use this song for the film, but the band wanted way too much money and I couldn't give them that. So I just, I just used it anyway. And they're like, Oh, so uh, artists shouldn't get paid for their art. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> She's like, no, that's not what I'm saying. It was going to be free publicity is how she justifies it. Oh yeah. Cause we're all just paid an exposure. <laughs> um, we'll get to the exposure later. Oh, and there's a lot that's exposed. Chris is following her husband, uh, Silver, played by Griffin Dunn, who's one of those actors who I always know I've seen in a million things and I can never remember one of them. I did look it up. He was in An American Werewolf in London. He, so that's a that's a big credit. But was that he, like his, was he the werewolf? The no, he was the werewolf's werewolf? friend, I think. I've okay. never seen it. I've only seen the sequel in American Werewolf in Paris, which is terrible. But, in some interviews, I saw them all being like, and we got Griffin done. Like, wow. Like, uh, I think Joey Soloway said, I can't believe I've revived Griffin Dunn's career in a way that Martin Scorsese couldn't. You know, <laughs> they were like making jokes about it. I'm like, I mean, I recognize him, but I don't know who this guy is. <laughs> he he shows up in a bunch of things, but he is significantly older than Catherine Hahn. He's an author and a Holocaust uh, scholar. One of the jokes that they make early on in the show is that they keep calling uh, Chris the Holocaust wife because he is the the Holocaust guy. Um, he's originally supposed to be on this uh, retreat to focus on his sort of big treatise on the Holocaust and get together with all these uh, artists at this um, seminar, right? Like that's what they call it. Like it's a it's a whole sort of a gaggle. retreat, a seminar, a gallery. Uh, it's a gaggle. It's a gaggle. A good old gaggle. And Chris is supposed to leave Martha after like a week, but because her film gets thrown out of the Venice Film Festival, she decides to stay with her husband, which turns out to be a less than ideal situation in a town where. There's nothing to do and you don't know anyone. And so you get a little, you get a little fixated, if you will. What is this season four of Arrested Development? Cause there are some fateful consequences going on here. <laughs> this becomes an issue because she gets completely wrapped up in Dick. Dick is the eponymous sort of, head of the seminar gallery institution. Oh, institution. That's the word I was trying to find. Institution. Gaggle. Gaggle. Played by Kevin Bacon. What's Kevin Bacon from? Well, we could tell you. Or you could ask a friend who knows someone who knows someone who knows someone who knows someone who knows them. <laughs> we all do. We all have those friends of friends of friends of friends of friends of friends of friends. Those seven connections of Kevin Borkin. I, I feel like the six degrees is trademarked in some way, so I want to avoid being sued. Yeah, you're right. You can't even say it out loud. No. Kevin Bacon is an interesting figure in this story, too, because I don't think he had done much TV outside of this, except for, like, movies and stuff, so I think this wait, was wait, kind wait. of a big what deal. What was that uh, show, The Crow? The Raven? What? What? The 
dude, he had this like investigation show for two or three years. Oh, I know what you're talking about. It's or it's like about a cult or something. He's yeah, like it's like the following or something like that. Uh, oh, no. Oh, my God. I, I'm oh, sure it is. It's the following. Yes. 2013 to 2015. Wow. I, that was one of those ones where I had to, like, scroll through TV posters in my brain to find one where he's just staring blankly at a camera. Right. But I was like, there's like a there's like a crow behind him. <laughs> I like don't think there's anything vulture. to do with a crow. Dude, I swear. Because the following, he's, like, investigating a cult, and I think the cult. It's like a, a an evil bird. I don't Ian, know. have you ever watched a single episode of The Following? No, it looked like some crappy network show that was for old people and wouldn't last. Yeah, and I was right. I think it actually did. I think it was like four seasons. Twenty thirteen to twenty fifteen. Three seasons. Two yeah. seasons. Maybe one. Whatever. Kevin Bacon. Actually, I think got the only major award nomination for this show. He got nominated for a Golden Globe for I Love Dick. But Dick is this sort of mysterious figure who is this soft-spoken cowboy. He runs this retreat. He used to be this artistic prodigy who now teaches others. The dude loves straight lines. He He thinks that... Like, there's one piece of art in his gallery that's just a brick. And they're like, what does this even mean? And he's just like, look at the lines. They're perfect. He never titles any of his pieces either. They're all untitled. But they're not called untitled. They just are untitled. He makes that distinction very clear as well. Right. But he hasn't done any major pieces in in 10 years. So he definitely represents this. He's just more of like a figure at this point in his life than he is a real artist. And I think that is one of the big things that draws Chris to him is all the things that she puts onto him in her own mind. Yes. Um, A lot of her infatuation with him is based on projection because Dick, um, he doesn't talk a lot, you know? He just sort of quietly walks around. And Kevin Bacon is, like, such perfect casting for this because there's just this gravity. There's this gravity that this character has that everyone is drawn to. It's this mysterious sexiness. Uh, you're like, what is he thinking? Why does he do the things he does? But you also want to be his friend. You want to like go up to him. And because as an actor, he's been in so many things and he has been since he was like a kid. You know, even though we didn't quote unquote grow up with him, you definitely feel this kind of kinship because of his this affability that he has. And but also this like ruggedness. Like I was just listening to him on Smartless and Will Arnett said, I've said this for years, nobody rocks a jean jacket like Kevin Bacon. (laughs) And I think that that is perfectly illustrated in I Love Dick. Yeah, and actually going back to something you said a second ago, um, in interviews, they talked about how he was perfect for this character too because he knows what it's like 
for people to meet him and think they know him. Yeah. And put their idea of him onto him and him being taken aback by that. Just like the way that Chris is, she meets Dick, she's heard of him, but all of a sudden it's like this infatuation, this obsession sets in Mm -hmm. and she doesn't know if it's lust or if it's love or if it's desire or if it's some sort of artistic expression she's feeling. But after meeting him like twice, she needs to write dozens of letters to him. You dozens. see it you see it in the show when she sees him rolling his own cigarette for the first time. It's this very slow, sexy, like fixating on the tongue and his eyes. It's all very much what she doesn't feel like she gets elsewhere. And the show does a really good job at sort of illustrating the unspoken pull and gravity of Dick as a character while also making his dialogue very clear that he has zero interest in Chris as a human being. Like at one point he says, I find you uninteresting straight. to Okay. But at the same time, he gives her those eyes, but that's her projection of like, she is interpreting those eyes. I think those are just his eyes. I actually, I disagree with you here. I think he's the kind of guy that wants everyone to want to sleep with him. That's a very fair read. Right. So he's a flirts, not quite the word. We're going to bleep this, but he's a boy. Yes. He's like the epitome of one. He likes the control of it. He likes the sort of. I guess not the game of it, but he just likes knowing that he has this power over people. Right. He's like, I don't want to, but if I do want to. It's on my terms. Right. But also, it's interesting because he wants everyone to be into him. And that's to satisfy his own ego, right? But at the same time, the reason that Chris is so into him is kind of to get someone that seems so unattainable into her is to satisfy her ego. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's a very complicated relationship made all the, and you feel that in all the other relationships in the, in the town of Marfa, we should talk about the other artists uh, that are part of, you know, this community. We've got Devin who is a local artist who sort of becomes enamored with Chris's obsession Uh, eventually starts to develop a play about Chris's obsession with Dick because Chris makes this obsession very public throughout uh, the show. But Devin is this sort of local artist who is definitely estranged from their family and is trying to sort of make their way, find their artistic voice throughout the show and sees Chris's infatuation as a as a sort of jumping off point for their own artistic expression. They're like a fixer upper, you know, <laughs> Yeah, they lived in the town. They went to art school. Um, and Devin's an interesting character, John, because they grew up in Marfa. 
never identified as being a female. I mean, people, or at least identified with very male things, mm-hmm. right? Um, identified with Dick, uh, you know, like Dick sleeps with Devin's mom, I think, right? When we find that oh. out. And Devin sort of idealizes this sort of cowboy uh, mysterious, rough, rugged mentality, even though the, you know, even though Devin was born female. Oh, but, yeah, you're right. There's a whole plot of an episode about them growing up to want to be Dick. Yeah. Um, which just goes to show his gravity that he has. Absolutely. He's such a fixture in the town. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows who he is. Frankly, he's the big swinging dick. <laughs> he does have a bit of a swagger. And he also pulls in people from outside of the town, too. He pulls in, uh, like, one of the other members of this seminar institute visiting people is uh, Toby, who is a, a younger woman whose art is about pornography, like hard pornography, but is focused on, like, understanding the shapes and the imagery of pornography as opposed to like just tries to kind of take all the for lack of a better term takes all the piss out of pornography and just focuses on it as a visual art which i thought led to some interesting stuff yeah um her character again is like a young art prodigy and so I think she feels kind of a competitive spirit with Dick, actually. Yeah. And it comes up later that Dick feels competitive with her, but you don't really get that until that, until like she goes viral pulling a stunt where she is naked on an oil rig site, uh, live streaming herself as basically this, this object. Right. And she's like, oh, I'm the land, much like the you take the oil out of the land and strip it for what it's worth. You objectify me. Something about pipes. These people are all incredibly pretentious. It is all about what value do we put on art? How much thought do we put into it? How much of it is like coming from us or how much of it is presentative uh, to, to sort of fit into this mold of like, I'm this intellectual that nobody else kind of understands. I think every character that we've talked about thus far falls into the trappings of what is the place of especially like high art in society and what does it mean for our own personalities? And I think that also impacts uh, Paula who is this, the curator of the Institute too. Paula, again, is another person that sort of idealizes Dick, but basically wants Dick to validate her opinions and ideas. And because he is such a withholding human being, she never gets that sort of extra validation. She is like craving this sort of professional recognition that never comes in any significant way. Right. She's always bringing up like feminist artists that she thinks that the gallery should put a spotlight on and Dick pretty much never says yes to any of her suggestions. I like the use of uh, some real figures in there too. Like I recognize there's a Paula during one of the montages of her 
bringing dick ideas talks about young gene lee's uh, new piece which uh, young Jean Lee is a playwright who I've seen some of her plays at like Steppenwolf and stuff. And it was, it was kind of interesting to hear those like little nuggets that I, you know, my weird artsy brain kind of like latched onto. Well, yeah, the book was written in the nineties and this came out as a modern show in 2016, 2017, or they want to make sure, you know, it's like modern, I think in that way. And it's a show about modern art, so... Yet one of the big fixtures of it is letters and, like, handwritten and hand-typed letters, which we should talk about the letters because they're sort of the big driving force. So as Ian mentioned, the book uh, was sort of... The original book was brought out by these letters that Chris Krauss wrote in sort of a, a fury or a fever of lust and desire and stuff, and... Catherine Hans Chris also writes out these letters uh, to Dick that aren't necessarily for Dick about how badly she wants him and what he wants, what he means to her and what she wants him to do to her. Like some of the language that's used in these is like, you know, dear Dick, I will not be muzzled or dear Dick, I've been horny since I was six. Uh, it's, it's all these very like short declarative statements, but they also are made all the more, and it's like dozens of letters that she writes like this and ends up sort of sending to him and posting throughout the town so that everybody knows just how big this guy has impacted her internally because she wants she doesn't get that validation from him and so therefore she's just like screw it and blows the entire thing up yeah the progression of the letters is very interesting because at first she just starts writing one because of this infatuation she starts to feel and Silver walks in on her writing it and he's like what are you working on and she's like oh it's just a piece of fiction that's coming out as a letter and he's like who's the letter to and she's like uh and then he like gets it out of her and she's like the letters to dick and it's clear right from the beginning that this is possibly more than just a piece of fiction this is her trying to figure out if this is again you know lust infatuation love or art or what exactly is this feeling she's feeling. But her being into him is what kind of re-sparks her and Silver's sex life. I mean, they talk about how they have not been intimate as a couple for a long time, and somehow this really gets them going. Yeah. The show does a really good job of, like, holding its cards in terms of what the intent of the letters is, because um, we don't really know fully what, Chris wants out of this or if she wants anything out of these letters until really like halfway through the season when she basically sees Dick and she's like your place or mine and that's when he tells her that he finds her uninteresting and that sort of so well, it I think it's starts two off- episodes earlier he tells her he doesn't like her movie like it's not his yeah. thing uh, he also doesn't think that women should be directors he says that too like at their first dinner together yeah, because, and th- this is important for the 
feminist female gaze aspect of the show. A lot of the show is about how female artists have to bring out how they feel repressed, how they feel invisible to the patriarchy, how they feel put on upon by men and how they have to overcome it. And Dick is like, well, because female filmmakers and artists have to put on the audience all of these other feelings, that's why they can't truly be artists because they can't get past it. Yeah. Uh, Which is crazy because he surrounds himself by female artists. Because he likes to feel superior to them. He also does... (laughs) He also at one point says he's post-thought. So this guy's a real wang. Like he is, (laughs) at times, he is this sort of, uh, control is just such a huge part of this for him. And when these letters get out and they get to him, he's, you kind of see his embarrassment because he's no longer this, you know, mysterious figure. He's the guy that the Holocaust wife is obsessed with and he doesn't like that that identity has shifted for him. And so that makes him feel more confrontational about what these letters mean. Right. He says that it's like an invasion of his privacy, but in reality, it's just, okay. So really quickly, the letters go from she writes them to she writes a bunch of them and submits them as an art piece to Dick in order to try to get, into one of his classes, he reads like two of them and is like totally creeped out by this and is like, we need to get rid of her. So then because he ignores her again, she posts them all over town, literally just taping them to buildings for everybody to read. And so then all of a sudden everyone is talking about Dick, but it's not in the way that he wants to be talked about in this John Wayne-ish style that he projects himself in, it's now everyone is seeing Dick through her eyes and he does not like that. Agreed. Ugh, John, but we could talk about Dick ad nauseum. (laughs) We need to get to some Dunzo Awards. Let's take a quick commercial break. And now a word from our sponsors. It's time for the Dunzo Awards. These are the superlatives that we give out to all of our shows. It could be the best. It could be the worst. It could be the trickiest. It could be the dickiest. Whatever it is, we have decided to give these shows their just desserts. Ian and I both have two Dunzo Awards to give out to elements of the show or the show itself. Ian Hamilton, what is your first Dunzo Award? My first award is the Maturity Award, which I give out to Silver. Okay. He is a mature man. Right. He is a mature man. He's older than her. Um, Although in the show, there is kind of a funny early uh, thing that he says to the younger artist, Toby, that shows that he's possibly just as out of touch as every other old man. But uh, whatever, you can watch the show and figure that out for yourself. (laughs) The Maturity Award goes to him because... When Chris writes the letter to Dick, as a couple, they openly talk about how she is falling in love with him or what exactly is going on. 
and he tries to do his best to be with her as she goes through these feelings. He's upset about it, but he's also very understanding as a human and as a husband. Like, I think he sees his wife going through something and wants to be there to help her. But at the same time, obviously, as a man and a husband, his ego is hurt by what's going on. And as an artist, his ego is hurt, too. Like, Oh, yeah. She steals all his thunder as an artist. Yeah, he thinks uh, he's going to be here to, you know, finally, you know, develop this thing that he's been building towards, as he says, like his entire life. And then it becomes all about this other thing that he has absolutely no control over. And it's interesting, too, because we find out in some flashbacks as well that uh, he, I mean, yeah, he is mature, but he also does kind of epitomize creepy old man a few times throughout the show. You know, we find out in flashbacks that Chris was like just out of college or like maybe still in college when they started getting together. I think one of my favorite lines was we would have sex and then eat clam soup and talk about moral philosophy. (laughs) That was the start of Chris and Silver's relationship. And then when Silver is kind of like flirting with Toby throughout like the first two episodes, Toby at one point just turns to him and says, you are awful as a firm declarative statement. And his expression is so funny. He's like, uh, 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 like whatever your face goes through with those three words. Uh, uh, but I. <laughs> He's cutting out, but in real time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He does not know what to say to that. He has this air about him as if he's like, oh, I just say what I want and I and I get it. And then he has definitely built that up, it feels like, over the course of his career. So when that is challenged, it is surprising to see him not turn into a complete emotional baby and try to find solutions as opposed to creating more problems, but I guess he does create more problems with his solutions. Right. He kind of epitomizes, just like Dick is a boy, Silver is the sensitive, understanding man who talks things through and tries to be there for his woman, and yet cannot help but be a little creepy, a little patriarchal, a little controlling you know, all the things that, hey, I'm sensitive. It's like, yeah, but you're still a man, you know? Exactly. You still grew up with the values you grew up with, that society grew up with, and you cannot help but impose your thoughts and feelings onto everyone else. And before I forget about it, that's another thing that the show is about, is that instead of these men imposing what they're doing onto all the women around them. All of a sudden, because of these letters, because of the fever dream that Chris is living in, all of a sudden, she's the one imposing the agenda upon everyone else. Mm-hmm. And I th- and the men are very uncomfortable with it. Yeah, and they are trying to find their own way to sort of regain that control, which I think is really interesting. Like, even... 
so this definitely affects uh, Dick and Silver's sort of working relationship. Dick says that she's a distraction to Silver because Silver is, again, basically kind of working for Dick as part of this sort of seminar institute structure. And so there's also those power dynamics there, too. In her letters, Chris brings up Silver's name. She's like, oh, Silver is so into the fact that I'm into you and stuff like that, which is not entirely true. No, it's not. And which I think is sort of used as her sort of ammo for saying, oh, this is just a work of fiction because you're not. But Silver like only wants to communicate to Dick when he basically forces Chris to apologize to Dick to say, like, tell him that I'm not into him. Like, I, right. I need that to be clear. But then when the two of them get together and they, like, get drunk one night. To, they, to hash things out. To hash things out. Silver is the one that says, like, I think you should sleep with my wife. And Dick's like, you want me to sleep with your wife? And he's like, no, I don't want you to. But I think you, think should. you should. And it's like, he thinks it's this sort of solution that he's presenting, but it's still like another attempt at him regaining control of the situation after he's lost it because now it's on his terms and it's not on hers. God, the more we talk about this show, it is just all about control, isn't it? Oh yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's just my tar brain that is uh, lit up after seeing (laughs) that Kate Blanchett movie. Also, two white men from the suburbs talking about feminism, you know? We're the good ones. <laughs> I'm sure we have the best opinions you could think of. John, what's your first Dunzo? My first Dunzo is the Big Mouth Award. And that goes to the show as a whole because this show is horny as his L. Man. <laughs> there is so also a lot of nudity. A lot of nudity. A lot of nudity. A lot of sex. I mean, and that's baked into the fabric of the show when you're talking about something that is so lustful. Yo, not to sideline you here, but (laughs) I can't believe how surprised I was that a show called I Love Dick was so sexual. Yeah. I thought it was just a cheeky title. I did not think it would actually be like this. No, I didn't either. I was watching this. So just so the listeners can get an understanding of my setup, I watch most of my TV on the first floor of my house in a living room uh, where I have the windows open because the dogs like to look outside. And I had to, at various times, turn the show off on my TV, open it up on my phone, and watch it from there because (laughs) the show is so graphic and I could, like, hear kids screaming and, like, not at the show, but, like, playing basketball or something like that in the background. And I was like, I don't want them to see, uh, you know, all the, the insane amount of nudity that is in the show. Very graphic sexual acts as well. I mean, it's, it's clearly also, it's not the male gaze. Like for the most part, it's directed by women and you can tell. No, it's absolutely right. From the way that, sex scenes are filmed from the way that like slight hints of female sexuality or, you know, human sexuality is filmed. It's like, there's a hint at it, but there's, it's just different. It's not the male gaze. Mm -hmm. Even the sort of fantasy sequences that aren't like explicitly sexual are about 
temptation and about desire. Like I think my favorite of the sort of fever dreamy fantasy sequences that Chris has is one where she's waiting outside near a truck and it's clearly a fantasy thing, but she sees a shirtless dick walking towards her with a sheep slung over his shoulders. And then he puts the sheep down and just starts gently shearing it in front of her. And it's shot in this way that's so like romantic and creepy and unsettling and, but also sympathetic that, yeah. Gentle, kind of gentle. Gentle. Yeah. Gentle, but firm. Just the way she wants to be sheared. (laughs) Ian, how do you want to be sheared with your second Dunzo? My second Dunzo is the insufferable award. (laughs) And that goes to the play that they're developing and the artist community as a whole. (laughs) I can't stand it. I mean, okay. I do consider myself an artist, okay? I went to theater school for a little bit. I grew up doing... I've been acting since I was seven. I've been writing since I was 17, 16. You do use the phrase, the craft. (laughs) I do get nitpicky about if they say improv versus improvise. (laughs) Uh, So there, or like skit versus sketch. Oh, dude, I, I have those instincts as well. I was uh, rehearsing for an improv show that I have coming up and one of my uh, teammates was uh, introducing something that we were doing. And he's like, and we've got a skit coming up. And I was just like, it's not a skit, dude. It is a no. scene. It is a form. How dare you? So I did have that in my head a little oh, bit. Yeah, but at the same time, like, it's true. I think words like that kind of show you who's in the know and who isn't. Mm-hmm. And all of these people want to be in the know. That can both be pretentious and it can show you who to trust yeah. in my opinion. If someone was like, "Oh, I didn't improv the other day." And I was like, "You improvised." <laughs> I don't want to say you did an improvisation. I want to say you improvised the other yeah. day. Because to them it'd be like, "What's the big deal?" But to me and you that have put years of our lives into it and thousands of dollars and uh far too much thought. <laughs> Uh, and Some would say emotional unhealthy. baggage yeah. Yeah, into that. It's like, no, there there is a difference. It's like, you know who's put in the time and who hasn't based on those little words. And okay, when I say insufferable too, th- there's a lot of it about the show th- that is, but they start to develop a play about oh Chris's obsession with Dick. And Devin does. To, to clarify. Right. But it's also like with this little gaggle of, <laughs> you know, I, just the way they wear their glasses and button up their shirts. You know, it is a gaggle. No, it is a and gaggle. They're like, oh, uh, oh, what are we feeling? What are we thinking? Oh, what does this mean? And they're like, they're just like, they take a phrase and just repeat it, you know? Uh, in order to try to find some sort of divine artistic inspiration. And it's so annoying. And at the same time, I understand the value in it. Yeah. And that so much of that aspect of the show goes into why I both am an artist and cannot stand artists. <laughs> and see our high fidelity episode because I talk so much about the different types of hipsters and why I hate hipsters because I am one. 
Same thing goes here. John, what's your second Dunzo? My second Dunzo is the Standout Episode Award. And I'm going to give that to episode five, which was, for me at least far and away, my my favorite episode of the show. It's called A Short History of Weird Girls. And what it does is it kind of takes us out of the sort of narrative structure of the show and it's center centric view of things. Exactly. And it uses it. It uses its time to focus on Chris, Devin, Paula and Toby and their backgrounds and specifically their relationships to Dick. So it sort of more explicitly says all of the thematic stuff that we kind of talked about in the first uh, part of this episode. Not so, necessarily just the relationship to Dick, though. It's also the relationship to men in general. Sorry. Yes. It, it it explicitly says their relationship to Dick, but that's not the focus of each of their stories. That's a great clarification. Thank you for that. But we find out that how Chris kind of got together with Silver, how Devin kind of came into uh, their own and understood what love was, which... For those that have read or seen the musical Fun Home, it's very much middle Allison energy because they fall in love with uh, a girl at college and that sort of spirals them to flunk out of school because they become so obsessed with this uh, girlfriend. And we also see like Paula's need for validation from Dick and Toby, which I think had she had one of the like most cutting and interesting kind of snippets of letters that ended that episode, which was because Toby's whole thing is Dick, you are past your prime. And it ends with dear Dick, we are not far from your doorstep, which I think is just a great line. And it is sort of punctuates Toby's motivation. I loved, loved, loved this episode. Uh, It was written by, Two playwrights that I have really liked outside of this, uh, Annie Baker, who I believe won a Pulitzer Prize for drama for the play The Flick, but has also done plays uh, called The Aliens, and uh, I think it's called Circle Mirror Transformation, which are very, very interesting plays. Highly recommend people reading those. Uh, Then there's Heidi Schreck, who co-wrote the episode with Annie Baker, uh, who made this one-person show called uh, What the Constitution Means to Me, which is also on Amazon. Highly recommend that, about her relationship to uh, speech and how the Constitution has basically historically failed women since it was written. And it's a really, really wonderful show. And I could see both of their voices in this sort of standalone episode i just what did you think of this episode i loved it this episode was a welcome change of pace for me because the first four episodes is so driven by chris's obsession and her manic energy and her inability to stop and how uncomfortable she is making everyone that it's it's exhausting. The first four episodes are really, I mean, it's an exhausting show overall mm-hmm. because of that energy. It's like, but but there's also kind of a, 
uh, like the first season of Last Man on Earth vibe going on where Will Forte's character is like an insufferable lying jerk the first season. Yeah. And it's really cringy and hard to watch. But then they flip the character and he's like way too nice last <laughs> three seasons. And it, it was a welcome change to the character. It also made sense. But it's just this thing where it's like the character makes them so hard to root for because they're making you so uncomfortable all the time. It's not a it's not a direct compar- comparison, but the energy is similar where it just makes me not enjoy the main character being on screen. Yeah. And that is part of the point. But it ooh, it's tough and thank God for this episode. Yeah, this episode cuz the whole kind of thrust of it is Chris basically talking to camera being like, "What if I wasn't the only one that was writing letters?" And so when you have that sort of framework, it opens it up to understanding these other characters that had not really been like pushed aside, but not really been spotlit in the way that I think really brought the themes of the show together in a compelling and interesting and funny way. And it, I, yeah, it was one of those things when the second I saw that the format was breaking for the show. I, I like leaned in and I put everything away and I just like let it happen. And I really liked it. I thought you were about to say you leapt from your seat. <laughs> I I was not uh, levitating in the way that uh, Mozart in the jungle does for you, but it, uh, it did, it did really impact me. Ian, we've talked a lot about what the show means and what happened and who these people are but i have one burning question for you about the show overall is i love dick a comedy that's hot well, John, because of the Emmy rules, anything that's a half hour is considered a comedy and anything that's an hour is considered a drama. Let's take the technicalities out of this. Is I Love Dick a comedy in your eyes? And yes, it was also nominated for a Golden Globe uh, for lead actor in a comedy for Kevin Bacon. So I will say that as well. Yes, I think it is. Um, I think of the show a lot like, It's like girls, you know, if you create a warts and all type expose, it leads to comedy because people are ugly and gross and weird and funny. You know, if you, if you strip people of ego, if you take away the masks that we wear it's all very ridiculous. And I think that this show highlights that. But it takes very dramatic feelings and makes them a little lighter. Okay. What do you think? I think it is a drama with comedic elements i also think it just sort of falls into this genre which i think was very popular 
in the sort of in the years between like 2015 and 2020 where it was like we're going to make something that isn't heavily dramatic but we're also not going to make it funny so therefore it's a comedy and also like, dramedy is not the right word no it's not and it reminded me there's this one snl sketch from that period of time it was right around when transparent won uh, a few emmys for best comedy where it was tom hanks and it was like a CBS comedy that was about a family of scholars who all got diagnosed with depression on the same day. But because it's a half hour, it's a comedy. There's <laughs> nothing funny about it. And they kind of put this like, follow this family as uh, they all the, are looking at dead birds, like that sort of thing. And that sort of epitomizes what I think the tone of the show is it how it, I mean, you know, it doesn't fit neatly into boxes, but to call it a, a comedy, I do think is a bit of a, a stretch. Never forget, John, that the Ridley Scott directed Matt Damon starring movie, The Martian, won for best comedy or musical at the Golden Globes. And it was a laugh riot. We are quoting that movie to this day. <laughs> Very Will Ferrellian in that way. Mm-hmm. John, I've got a burning question for you. And that is, what did you think about the male beauty dance at the end? <laughs> Ooh, that's hot. Because the show has kind of two endings. Yeah. It ends with Dick and Chris almost hooking up, but not because it's her time of the month and they realize that. Uh, For lack of a better term, when it's too late, um, (laughs) which I thought was, I really liked the way that their story ended, actually. Yeah, I did too. It was a cool shot at the end with her kind of walking into the sunrise with the blood dripping down her legs. Right, but then Devin's story and Toby's story, you think that the play that they're working on is going to be put on, but then it just becomes she puts on this thing in the town with all these men in a square and she leads what she calls a male beauty dance that they all participate in. I found it to be very unsatisfying as an ending. I It was one of those kind of moves that I felt was something that made a lot of sense to the creators as they were developing it. And they had an idea for like how this tied together to everything else, but it didn't come across on screen because I agreed. I had this sort of, I guess as a viewer, I had this expectation of this is the play that we have seen being pseudo developed over the course of uh, the season and that it just kind of turns into this line, like Devin just kind of leads these guys into this um, sort of like they flex one muscle, they flex another muscle. Then they like stroke their cheek. Yeah. And I guess it's to show that, uh, you know, the men can be objectified in the, in you know, to put the sort of male gaze onto the men themselves while also empowering them to embrace their masculinity. And then it leads to like Griffin Dunn getting like way too into 
this dance and he's like shaking and shouting in like sort of like I am man hear me roar sort of fashion. No, it yeah, didn't work, it's it like didn't work for feel me. Feel masculine, but also accept your beauty. Um, which okay, so for me, thematically, I get it. Plot wise, unsatisfying, just like you said. I think that's completely fair. Well, Ian, now that we've gotten some burning questions out of the way, I think we should take a quick commercial break and we will understand why the show got canceled. And now a word from our sponsors. Okay, so why did the show get canceled? Well, it was critically acclaimed. Um, The showrunner was having great success and trust at Amazon. And Kevin Bacon, you know, I mean... When the show came out, I really wanted to watch it, actually, just because it seemed interesting and Kevin Bacon seemed cool in it. I heard an interview or two and something about that poster. It's just like his face. It's red and blue. Just says, I love Dick. And it just seemed interesting. Yeah, there's another poster, too, that's got like a couple bullets like lined up, too, which made it uh yeah, it, I watched, I think, the first two or three Well, it's a small it bullet, a medium bullet, and a big bullet all next to each other. So yeah. figure out the imagery for yourself. <laughs> so it seemed interesting. I never got around to it, which is why I wanted to do it for this show. Um, but it was canceled in succession with other Amazon shows. Uh, Jean-Claude Van Johnson, oh, yeah. which is another one and done. Uh, starring Jean-Claude Van Damme, which is some comedy where I don't know if he plays himself or if he plays... It's like a version of himself, yeah. Yeah, like an action movie star, but it's a comedy. Mm -hmm. And they also canceled this along with the second season of One Mississippi. Mm. Um, Actually, it's kind of interesting because... uh, this show started in the same pilot thing as Jean-Claude Van Johnson, but also started at the same time as The Tick, which did get a second season. And I think a third, too. Uh, I thought they only did two, but maybe. Um, but anyway, all three of these shows were canceled, and frankly, The Tick was canceled soon after that, too. Maybe it lasted another year. And the consensus seems to be that in the fall of 2017 there was a studio chief Roy Price at Amazon who had to resign because of some sexual harassment sexual misconduct allegations against him from you know another producer or something at Amazon and when he left and another studio chief took over it seemed like their one big goal was to get Amazon's competitor for Game of Thrones. Hmm. And it was soon thereafter that they threw $200 million to buy the rights to Lord of the Rings. Um, So under Roy Price's steering of the ship, okay, I guess we're on a ship now, <laughs> He, they were getting into these niche comedies, these niche female-driven, female-written comedies. Uh, like another one, Catastrophe, yeah. I know. It was it's with, also... uh, 
Yeah, with Sharon Horgan. Yeah. Right. And I believe that's female created as well. And now I'm going based off of memory instead of research, but I believe this is right around the time Mozart in the Jungle left and Red Oaks was gone as well. So they had all these quirky little comedies going and then they changed direction completely. They've just got bigger shows now. Um, They've got Wheel of Time. They've got Jack Ryan. Yeah, it's this interesting. Jack Ryan was ordered at the same time as Lord of the Rings. You're right. It's this interesting pivot that... Amazon took around that time where, you know, it's still adult content, but where they were previously like, you know, the give us your tired, your weak, your, your poor sort of like come with us with your weird shows that are geared towards a more mature audience that nobody else is going to do similar to Netflix it definitely evolved into we are going to make the broadest appealing adult content that we possibly can think of. And it happened over a very, very short period of time. The This time was also, too, when Amazon was pivoting to like more of a movie-focused strategy, too. I think like a year or two after I Love Dick got canceled – they invested a bunch of money in the Sundance movies that didn't go anywhere, like Late Night and Britney Runs a Marathon, which I really love that movie. I haven't heard of either of those. Late Night with uh, Mindy Kaling and Emma Thompson. Oh, yes. I remember that. Yeah. And then Britney Runs a Marathon is uh, Jillian Bell. It's a wonderful, wonderful movie. But Amazon, yeah, they they have these... I don't know. We've talked about just how weird Amazon is in the past. And this actually puts more context to it to me because I never really saw this hard line in the sand the way that I'm seeing now is that, I mean, you know, Disney had bought the MCU. They bought Star Wars. Uh, I think this is just another billion dollar company trying to go up against Disney and HBO with these like big adult eh, actions, not the right word, but like juggernauts, things that you can MCUify, you can, you know, create a fan base and then do a, a bunch of spinoffs of just like, look, AMC has like four walking dead spinoffs coming out. I think that the way that some of these companies are working is that it used to be like all in the family Got a couple spinoffs. Happy Days has three spinoffs. You know, it's never been like big action-packed dramas before, and now that's what's happening. I read this article recently about the the X trilogy. Uh, If you heard of the horror movie X that came out earlier in 2022. When I was at South By, a lot of people were talking about it. Yeah, and it was followed up by a sequel that was shot kind of in secret, Pearl, uh, which came out later in the year. And then they've got another sequel coming out, I think, next year in 2023 called Maxine, The Three X's. And it's this weird sort of trilogy that none of those movies cost more than a million dollars to make. And why can't we see more of like that stuff, like these low investment, like high return things that could still be franchised in a way 
without taking huge, 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 huge paychecks to fund. I think there's opportunities to uh, take this sort of more niche adult content and still franchise it, spin it off in a way that uh, can create a brand without uh, breaking a bank in the process. I do get why you would want it to be a series of movies as opposed to TV shows, though. Yeah, I get I get that, too. As far as the, the low budget to big return, I don't think that model quite works as well in television. It It might not, but it could be something it could have been a direction i think that amazon could have gone into if that's a way that they wanted to sort of franchise things like find something that grabs people in some way uh make a little you know thing around it uh put some marketing behind it and see what happens cuz i think what the amazon strategy now it just reads as desperate to me honestly like it's so thirsty like hey look at us guys we got we got we got hobbits you want you want to see some hobbits, guys? Come come hang out with some hobbits. Yeah, and Lord of the Rings. It's like I enjoy the show, but it's not good. You know, like <laughs> I I keep saying that you need to watch it with a couple other people so that you can make fun of it while you're watching it. Um, but I'm just such a big fan of like the lore of Lord, like the Tolkien verse and stuff that. Um, I like watching it like for those reasons. There are some storylines that I enjoy more than others, but this is probably the hardest that we've ever seen an executive change cancel a show. What about Freaks and Geeks where like the executive didn't go to public school and therefore didn't understand the show? There are there is yes. a million examples of executives sort of torpedoing strategy and long-term sustainability of tiny weird things. No, I, I agree. I mean, I think that it's very normal for a new executive to come in and to cancel the shows of the old executive because they don't want them getting credit. You know, they, they're like, no, I want my ideas to be the thing that everybody's talking about. But I've, I don't think we've seen like somebody completely changed course like this before where it's like forget all everything we're doing let's be something almost completely different well amazon has just never had stability when it comes to its content strategy ever like in the 10 years that they've been doing original content i haven't like we i think we've talked on the show before like what is an amazon show it changes from year to year and I think this is an example of one era of Amazon show. And now we are in a different era of Amazon show and there's never, they don't have that. They don't have the stability of direction in order to justify having their own brand. And I think honestly, this was the kind of content that was closest to them developing something unique and it never came to fruition. You know what it reminds me of? It's like, TBS had a year or two where they were trying to develop all these quirky comedies. They had the detour, they had search party, they had uh, humans on earth or something like that with um, Wyatt Cenac, Mm -hmm. which was pretty good. Uh, One year put out all these comedies. A couple of them lasted maybe two or three years. 
and then they were just gone. Like TBS is like, let's put all of our eggs in this basket. And then very quickly it was like, uh, uh, get a new basket, get a new basket. <laughs> You've already put the years in, see it through. You know, yeah. uh, we've talked about how weird Amazon is before and we will talk about it again. But John, right now we got to talk about would you renew? I would not renew this show. I found parts of it to be very compelling. Performances were great. Uh, like I said, that middle, that fifth episode really was exceptional. When we think about renewing shows, we need to think about what the sustainability of the story is going to be. I do wonder that with this. This show spun its wheels so much in the first eight episodes that I didn't see anywhere for it to go. And I was thinking about why this was. The show, on its surface at the very least, is about a fixation one person's fixation on the idea of another person. And you can either accept that fixation, you know, like, oh, like, let's see where this relationship goes. Or you reject it. Um, this isn't for me. I don't like you. Get away from me. Ew, gross. The show plays with both dynamics a little bit in these eight episodes. But... Where does it go beyond that? I don't know. And frankly, I didn't really care to find out. I just felt like they they could have made the show more about the relationships. They could have built those out a little bit more so that you could see where some lines were going to go. And I'm sure they had an idea for a second season. But again, the sort of repetitiveness of I love you, go away. I love you. Go away. I love you. Well, maybe there's something, but go away. There just wasn't enough there for me to see a justification for there being more of it. Oh, John, friends did that for nine years. They did it in a way that they were still able to tell different stories without making it feel <laughs> annoying. And I just, I didn't care about these people because it just didn't feel like there was any sort of motivational drive to the story itself. Ian, what about you? Would you renew? I would renew. And okay. I'm surprised to hear me say that, but I've thought about <laughs> it a lot. And I think this show has the same appeal that Girls has, which is a lot of it is insufferable and I hate the way it makes me feel. But there are some very charming's the wrong word. Yeah, I don't think you could say that ever. It's a bad word for charming. Yeah. Uh it has a gravity to it. Dick's got gravity. Okay. Dick's <laughs> got pull. Okay. And it gets points for for everything. I was like, the acting's great. It has a very real point of view, a very unique point of view, but one that it knows what it is. Uh, I think the way that it, they filmed it was really unique. You know, I thought there was some cool 
directing going on there. Um, they changed the format exactly when I needed them to. Where it would go, I have no idea. But I do trust these voices to make it compelling for at least 30 more episodes. There was part of me that thought this should just be a movie, though. I don't like I don't know if we totally needed eight episodes to tell this story or if we need more. But other than the fact that like the things that were insufferable about it, I know that they meant for them to be insufferable. You know, it was an art piece in that way that they're trying to make you feel what they're feeling or what she's feeling. And in that respect, they're very effective and they did it well. I have to give them a 10 out of 10 for doing exactly what they were trying to do, I think. And is that what you want to see? Because that was not what I wanted to see. I know what you mean, dude. It's like, it's tough to sit through. It's a tough show to sit through. I didn't even think it was tough in the way that I thought it might be tough. Like, yeah, it was a little cringy at times, but again, I, there just wasn't enough, like there was so much thematically that I found interesting about it that I think they could have, they just didn't take the time to set up enough outside of that sort of core dynamic between Chris and Dick. I also loved their their ending. The way Chris and Dick ended was great. That was great. And I didn't need to see anything beyond that because I didn't care enough. And I think the thing that really sort of kind of solidified my point was how that sort of Devin-Toby story wrapped up with that weird male beauty ritual dance. I was just like, if this is how you're going to treat your other characters, then there isn't more to say here than what you have. And I didn't care where that went enough to make it worth seeing more of. And it's frustrating because I think there's a lot of talent there. And it just, it was, it it felt too grinding at times. I totally get that. I just think that there is an undeniable quality to what it is, um, to all aspects of television making and storytelling I think that it's very high quality and I cannot justify saying they don't get another chance to do what they're doing because it's a very unique show and I think it gets extra points for that for me and I get that you know the character is tough to love and I don't know if I do uh, love Chris And also, I know that is something you have a very tough time with, which is like a main character that you don't get their motivations. Well, and that's the thing. I think the show did a good job of making me understand Chris's motivations. And I I did get that, especially when you've got something that is, is somewhat unexplainable. Like, I think that was a good tact for the show to have, like, I have this pull. I can't really get to why it is, but it's just like in my guts. 
I think the show does a really good job of making you understand not necessarily, not even just like why she does all these things, but also just that it is something that is unexplainable, that it is in your guts, that it is a pull that you can't really grab onto, but it does enough to justify that sort of existence. And, but it just wasn't enough to make me want to see where that went outside of the feeling that it was in that moment. Like there wasn't anywhere for that to go for me. And that was, I think, a reason that it, it just didn't fully work for me as something that needed to be continued. Yeah, I get that. Quick question. Did you, did you, how much of Girls did you watch? Not more than I wanted to. Like I, I got <laughs> partway into season two. Did not. Uh, it just wasn't a good, a, of enjoyable experience for me. And so I. No, I, I know what it. you mean because with girls, I had a weird arc where I watched the first two seasons. Season two became so insufferable for me that I stopped watching until the last season was coming out, and I was like, "I'll give it another try." And then I like loved it for some reason, and I just think. Whatever that reason was, I think I would get a similar thing out of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as as far as two uh, white dudes from the suburbs talking about this, I think we did a decent enough job. If you want a really good, you know, critique of the artistic merit and the feminism of the thing, which it's dense and it has a lot, there are better people to talk about it. So go listen to them. Yeah, there we. I will never say that I am the definitive voice of anything, except for myself. Also, this show criminally underused Phoebe Robinson. Ian, where could people find us? You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at One and Done TV. You can email us your thoughts, your opinions, uh, One and Done Pod at gmail.com. And uh, buy yourself a Lodge Pan Scraper and Venmo me at Hamilton. We hate to see Dick go but we love to watch Dick walk away. Brought to you by Lack of Hustle Media. 